the Lord. Ooh, this is going to be good. All right. Can you uh, start us off with a word of prayer? Father God, thank you so much for bringing us back to this place. Thank you for uh, allowing us to have a time of rest and respite and refreshment on different levels, Lord. It's been a busy year, busy season, but we are thankful to be back again recording and and encouraging one another. Thank you for the privilege I have to disciple Buddy through this, the means of this podcast. Thank you for his family and his wife and the blessedness of us partnering together in the ministry of the gospel here at Belcroft Bible Church. Lord, we pray that this podcast would be used by you to glorify you, to exalt your son, and to declare your truth. Father, it's not about us. It's all about you. Help us to be faithful to the truth. Help us to speak only the truth, and help us most assuredly to speak most about the truth, Father, for that is what this is about, and that's what's all about you. And we pray this now in our time together. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Truth Talks. Welcome back, everyone, to the Truth Talks podcast. I'm your host, Buddy Boone. We are back, and I feel like this is a new season, and not in like the the <laughs> the 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 you know the the weird you know season of breakthrough and all that stuff that those you know the that different the modern church would say, uh, literally like. I feel like we're going into fall because we are, we are, Yeah, <laughs> the, it's the temperature. It's yeah. like the changing of the, the leaves, yeah. you All, know, although summer's not over. Summer is we're not over. Some, s- summer is the humidity will be back. Yeah. It's, it's coming. It's, it's inevitable because yeah. this is, you know, but we're working our way there. We're working our way there. Yeah. And, and I feel like this is like the new start to, you know, a, a wonderful season of, the truth talks podcast, even though it isn't. And, and I, and I don't, I don't know. The last time I did it, it was like a hundred episodes. So I don't know how many episodes it's been. Yeah. I don't know. So you You don't know. I don't know. You just wanted to call it a new season of truth talks podcast. It's been so long. I'm surprised the equipment works. It it didn't at first. (laughs) I had to re log in everything. I had to change batteries. I'm surprised you remembered the passwords. Yeah. I I had to I had to get some help on the passwords because, you know, yeah, it's it's it's, it's been, been a while. while. It's been a while. So we've been busy. Yeah, and uh, speaking of busy, you have uh, been on uh, a sabbatical. Yes, I have. And been. Uh, you know, I really am interested in what a sabbatical is all about. Like, yeah. what you know, because obviously we we hear sabbatical is like, yeah, Max taking a sabbatical. And then we see you in church every single Sunday. Absolutely. You know, so can you help us understand, you know, what the sabbatical is? And I'm guessing, you know, because I know my elders and my pastor well enough that, you know, you there is a uh, either a biblical uh, a reason for it, uh, a biblical response of a sabbatical. Mm -hmm. So, you know, kind of help us out with that. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the technical definition of a sabbatical is just a time of. Uh, of rest and or or a time of refocus in work most often the sabbatical is used for teachers and professors and instructors that's kind of the the um, the normal use of the term and the normal 
uh, category by which a sabbatical is given to is given to professors, instructors, teachers, people who teach. Mm-hmm. Very common, very common uh, thing in the teaching world where a teacher will teach for so long and then they're given a sabbatical. And, and most of the time, those sabbaticals are, are what are what are termed as work sabbaticals or, or research sabbaticals where mm-hmm. they're given time off from their normal job to go research, to go write, to go read, to go prepare for something else. That's actually very common in the uh, world of uh, the collegiate world. That's very common. Usually about every five to seven years, Hmm. an instructor will get a sabbatical. And the purpose of that is for them to prepare and work and and do more research for the next seven years or whatever, something they're working on. Usually an instructor has a field of expertise, right, that they're zeroed in on, and so they'll use that. A lot of times, uh, even in for pastors, it's common for a sabbatical to be given for them to go uh, to do more training, oftentimes to go to Israel. That's a very common sabbatical. Mm. It's like a, a almost like a, um, a tour, take the Paul tour, go to Israel. Right. And so it's like a work sabbatical where they're, mm-hmm. There have uh, an earmarked time that's more than a vacation time, so to speak, where they're going to a, a foreign land or or a special time of study for the purpose of of bolstering their ministry, their expertise, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, my sabbatical was not that. Mine was uh, what was what the elders termed as a rest sabbatical, mm-hmm. where they were just giving me time to go rest which I needed that, which yeah. obviously is uh, uh, rest is a biblical thing and mm-hmm. rest and getting away from ministry and having rest. Obviously, um, uh, Jesus exemplifies that multiple times with his own disciples. And so that's really what this was. Um, and that's not uncommon in, in ministry world, um, especially in churches like ours where it's extremely busy and, and I'm the only pastor and really the only paid staff and, and uh, it's just busy, which I'm thankful for that. I'm not complaining at all and wouldn't change it, but mm-hmm. it is quite demanding and yeah. uh, often seven days a week and, you know, not by design. It's just the nature of the work. And so there comes a time where, hey, there, there's a break that's needed. And the elders obviously drove that, not me. I didn't ask them for it, but I was thankful for it. And so they were the ones that said, hey, we want to give this to you, want to do this. And I even asked them, or, so what's my direction in the sabbatical do you want me to read study write research for you know prepare future sermons Mm -hmm. like is that what this is because you get paid during a sabbatical is a paid time it's not non-paid so that's that's a that's it's not like a vacation where you might have paid time you might not Mm -hmm. right where sabbatical is always paid and so uh so i asked them that and they were adamant no we we you can do whatever you want just don't do any ministry work no ministry work whatsoever, hmm. and no reading, no writing, no nothing to do with ministry. You just need to rest. And so I said, okay, I can, I can do that. So I worked on my house. I did a lot of projects and, and did a lot of work on the man plan with my son. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of things together that I don't normally get to do, mm-hmm. which was uh, a, a tremendous blessing. And, a, and, a, and uh, to say it as my good friend Alejandro in in Argentina would say, it was awesome. <laughs> awesome. That's how he says it. It's awesome. But uh, it was. It was a great time with Christian, my son. And, and uh, yeah, it was good. It was good. I, I definitely needed it. I was, I'm sure a lot of the people that know us will know, but I was struggling with some health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the sabbatical 
was providentially timed, obviously, because it came at just the right time when I really needed a respite. Mm-hmm. And it really helped my body mm-hmm. big time. Good. And that which I was dealing with before the sabbatical with some uh, heart issues uh, is no more. Hmm. And I'm thankful for that. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that it won't return, but it hasn't returned. Good. And uh, and it seems obvious that the sabbatical was a good time for my body to recalibrate and, and be refreshed. And it was good. It really was good. You so, know, what's funny is that... It, it kind of erased my concern because, you know, a lot of us were concerned. And yeah. you, you just saying it just now, it's like, oh, yeah, we we were talking about that before you went yeah. on sabbatical. So yeah. that's a great update. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's funny. I had a I had a stress test and a, a ton of of heart tests from cardiologists. And right before the sabbatical, it was it was it was actually quite encouraging to get this before the sabbatical to mm-hmm. kind of clarify some questions we had. And I uh, went to see the cardiologist to get my report on the stress test. And the cardiologist asked me if, if I'm an athlete. <laughs> that, was my wow. re- that was my response. <laughs> I laughed. And I said, excuse me? Yeah. She said, do you work out? I said, not enough. Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, how do you define working out? Right. right. I preach like crazy. That's right. a workout. Mm-hmm. I sweat. And, uh, but no, she said, you're, you have the heart of an athlete your heart rate, everything functions like an athlete. So you're in good shape and your issues are not cardio, they're That's gastro. Good. So, which is what I thought, but it was mm-hmm. good to be able to nail that down going into the sabbatical. Right. No. Okay. This is good. So, because there were some, obviously some serious things that had happened. And so praise the Lord. Yeah. That is a great update. Yeah. I, I appreciate and that. So the elders have, have, I mean, they're driving this cause I've followed my leaders, but they now want me to take a sabbatical every three years, and uh, which is, I'm thankful for that. That'll mm-hmm. be a blessing for uh, me. And uh, obviously, it'll take different shapes, and hopefully one of them will be, hey, I'm going to Israel for a month, mm-hmm. and that'll be a blessing. But um, um, but they're also redirecting even some things we do in the month of July to help get me some more rest and yeah. and things. So they've got a good plan for that that they've proposed, and... And we'll be sharing with the congregation in a couple of weeks. And it's exciting. It's exciting. So they weren't giving you a sabbatical or wanting you to go on a sabbatical because when you got here, your hair was black and now it's gray. Is that what it was? <laughs> I'm sure that I'm sure that that helped. I'm sure that helped. <laughs> it's like uh, the, they, they show the pictures of presidents like Barack yeah. Obama. Yeah. You know, the the guy that you look like. Yeah. Uh, the, the, <laughs> That's what everybody the, says. Yeah. The, I don't, uh, I don't know how to take that. <laughs> uh, take it liberally. How about that? <laughs> Uh, so when he first got into office, his hair was pitch black. And by the time he got to like year six of his second, uh, term, it completely gray, 100% gray. Yeah. That's me. Seven years. Uh, yeah, I'm praying that we've gone through the seven years of lean, you know, with Joseph, (laughs) we've gone through the seven lean years. So he went through the seven fat years first. Right. I'm praying we went through the seven lean years. Right. Right. Now the seven fat years are coming. Yeah. yeah. Which is why you need a a sabbatical every three years (laughs) versus every seven years. Yeah. Makes total sense. So, well, as you can imagine, uh, I have a lot of questions and I'm really thinking about where I should start. I think the best place to start is... Um, with the, um, with the first sermon that you did coming back. Uh Oh, and this is a, this is a question centered around scripture. Mm -hmm. Um, like 
all of them should be. Yes. But specifically, uh, the whole of Scripture. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you mentioned in that uh, sermon from uh, August 7th, mm. uh, from Mark 12, 35 through 37. Yep. Um, you mentioned um, the dual authorship of Scripture. Yes. And, you know, first I want you to explain that. The yes. second portion of that is what, how does, how does that what are the implications of that in truth? Excellent question. I'm so glad you asked. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, in that passage, it's it's uh, Mark 35 to 37, where, uh, yeah, Mark chapter 12, 35 to 37, where Jesus is uh, finally um, questioning his questioners. All the scribes, mm-hmm. Pharisees, Sanhedrin have been seeking to entrap Jesus with these uh entrapment questions that were to corner him and to ultimately uh, disqualify himself and how he answered the question. And obviously he never did that. Mm-hmm. He actually disqualified them and all his answers. And so now at this point, he, he is now questioning the scribes who are the experts of the law, who are, so, who are the so-called teachers of the scriptures. And he asks them simply one question out of the scriptures. And he points them back to Psalm 110, verse 1, and basically asks, how does David call the Messiah his Lord and you call him his son? Mm-hmm. So how can he be both and what does that mean? And, and literally, he's just, he's just showing and highlighting how they do not understand how to handle Scripture because there's an answer to that exegetically, mm-hmm. how you work through that. And they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't do it because they knew that they were cornered and trapped by him, and they had no real answer because if they gave the biblical answer, then that would undermine so much of what they've been teaching and believing because they did not believe in the deity of the Messiah. They believed emphatically in simply the humanity of the Messiah. That's what the rabbis had taught. And that's what they believed. And, and thus, when Jesus claims to be both God and man, that's why they call him blasphemous. Because the Messiah would never do that. He's mm-hmm. just a he's just a, a superhuman, mm-hmm. but he's a human, let alone uh, God. And so, so he calls them out because David obviously highlights the deity of the Messiah in Psalm one ten verse one. And so Jesus says, "Wait a minute! If you think he's just a son, i.e., he's just human, why does David call him Adonai, call him Lord?" Mm. And uh, obviously, they couldn't answer. So in that passage. And there's so much to learn from this. But in that passage, Jesus, it says, verse 35, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said the question, how can the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, and then he goes on and he quotes Psalm 110. Well, that verse right there, verse 36, where it says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. That is a, that's just a helpful verse that highlights the dual authorship of Scripture, mm-hmm. because he's highlighting the fact that both David, the king, the man, David, the son of Jesse, spoke Scripture, highlighted Scripture, wrote Scripture, Psalm 110. David himself says, and then he, but he adds in there, in the Holy Spirit. So he's showing the human authorship of Scripture, and the divine authorship of Scripture. Mm-hmm. That's the dual authorship of Scripture, mm-hmm. that the, the Holy Word of God is, has an ultimate author, and that author is God himself, i.e. the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God through the, the Father God 
that by which we get the Word of God, right? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the ultimate author of Scripture, mm-hmm. right? And yet the the intermediate authors or agents of Scripture are the human authors that God used, the 40-plus human authors that God used to write His Holy Word. And one of them, a big one, would be David. And so in this passage, when Jesus Himself says, David said, in the Holy Spirit, He is describing Scripture for us. He's describing the very nature of Holy Scripture as a human wrote, but the human wrote by the means of, under the superintendence of, under the power of, protected by, guided by the Holy Spirit. That's what in the Holy Spirit means. Mm -hmm. More literally in the Greek, by the means of the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. meaning by the work of the Holy Spirit, which obviously... Second Peter chapter one verses uh, twenty twenty one speaks of the of the process of how that actually happened, where holy men of God were moved along by the Holy Spirit, were literally carried along like a ship is carried along by the wind that fills its sails. You can't see the wind, right? You can't see it, but you can feel it, and it moves that big ship. So it was the Holy Spirit filled these men and moved them along to write whatever God wanted them to write, mm. to where it was actually the men who were writing, but yet it was God who was writing through the men. And so that's the dual authorship of Scripture. Now, the you asked about the implications of that. Mm-hmm. Well, the implications are massive. One, because it shows us that the Word of God is not like any other word. Mm. There's no other book on the planet, never has been, never will be, that will have dual authorship, mm-hmm. right, in the divine sense and the human sense. Mm-hmm. Now, there's many books that have dual authors, but they're both human, mm-hmm. right? And so this is the only writing on the planet that has divine authorship, but has divine authorship through, right, human authors as well. So that's, that's a, a huge implication right there, because then that elevates the Word of God above all other writings, mm-hmm. right? and the way we handle it. But it also, the greater implication that I think is often missed is it begins to then lay the foundation for our hermeneutics. The dual authorship of Scripture is foundational to a right hermeneutic. If you have a book that is both written by man but ultimately given by God, now, in a right understanding of that, now you'll start to lay the groundwork for sound hermeneutics. Right. Yeah. Hermeneutics meaning the science and art of the study of Scripture. Gotcha. Right. And so so there's a method, there's a means, there's a way to read and study the Bible. Mm -hmm. But that is not given by man. We didn't make this up. No man comes up with his own hermeneutics. God actually gives us our hermeneutic by giving us the Bible in its dual authorship. So the fact that it's written by men means that it's going to have what? Figures of speech, mm-hmm. metaphors, similes. It's going to have different genres because men write in different genres, different types of writing. You're going to have poetry. You're going to have prophecy. You're going to have narrative. Each one of those are going to contain different types of figures of speech, are going to contain different formats of writing, different, different grammatical highlights and stuff. That begins to line out our hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. That begins to show us, okay, there's going to be 
there's 40 different authors, different men. There's going to be different styles. Mm -hmm. So not all the writing is going to look the same, even though it's all going to say the same thing, Mm -hmm. but it's all going to look differently. And so we're not going to think it's a contradiction because this guy writes more eloquently over here and this guy writes more commonly over here. Mm -hmm. There's nothing, there's no lack of divinity in that. Mm -hmm. It's just the nature of the man who wrote, Right. right? And so you start to see how the dual authorship clarifies so much about Scripture, and then begins to line up our understanding of Scripture that it must be historical, right, in our Mm -hmm. hermeneutic. Mm -hmm. So if I understand that we've got these human authors, well, then I have to understand who they are. I've got to understand their context. I've got to understand the history behind them, behind when they were writing. Well, where does that come from? The dual authorship of Scripture. You start to see how God himself is now lining out for us our hermeneutical principles. Mm -hmm. Not we, not man, but God himself in the language he gave us. So he gave us the dual authorship of Scripture, and in that, he gives us language. And language itself demands that that it would be read a certain way, that it would be heard a certain way. I mean, that's just, that's just common sense. Mm-hmm. And it would be heard in the language that it's given and the, and the history of that language and the grammar of that language. Well, who gave us the language? God did. Mm-hmm. And who gave us the three different languages of the Bible? Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. God did. Mm-hmm. And so, again, you see how God himself was if you will, pinning himself into a specific hermeneutic, mm-hmm. right? And he did that. We didn't do that. All we did was recognize the hermeneutic that God had already delivered through the dual authorship of Scripture and in the design of Scripture itself. So when you start to flesh this out, the implications are massive in how we read the, the, the Bible. And so here's another one that the liberals... This is very foundational to liberal theology. I think you. Know, I think you. We're on the same page. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Go so ahead. in liberal theology, mm-hmm. okay, the Word of God. The let me let me say it this way. In liberal theology, the Bible becomes the Word of God at a certain point. Mm. There is an epiphany. There is a point in time. It's called the reader response theory, and where the reader is reading, and he has this epiphany, and when he has this epiphany, this enlightening, so 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 to speak, it it's at that moment that it now becomes the word of God, whatever that is, mm-hmm. not the entire word, but that moment. Mm-hmm. That's a very liberal um, understanding and very common understanding in liberal theology. Well, the dual authorship authorship of Scripture says no, no. It's always been the Word of God, mm-hmm. and it has nothing to do with the, with the reader's response to it. The writer, the writers, right, were used by God to write holy, divine Scripture. Mm-hmm. That's definitive. No matter how you read it, i.e., no matter what your response is to it, it's the Word of God, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. You see the implications yeah. for this. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah. And so, and so, they, um, so when Jesus says this, he is making a massive statement mm-hmm. about Scripture, and uh, that one that w- is often overlooked, and yet can't be because it drives everything we do. Yeah, you know it's it's great that you went that way. Um, there are two questions, two big questions that I have. So, to lay the groundwork, um, one thing that I have struggled with, and one thing that's always a question when people talk about the Bible and try to discredit the Bible is how is it that that group of men were able to canonize the Bible, canonize meaning put those specific books into it? Because you're talking about the dual authorship, but I'm like, okay, the Bible has dual authorship. You've just laid the groundwork and the foundation for that. Yes. Now, what about the 
books of the Bible or the books that were yeah. left out of yeah. the Bible? Were yeah. they not inspired by God or, yeah. you know, is that, that, that's one question. So I'm going to, I'm going to let you handle that question first before I move to the next. Okay, one. perfect. Good. Cause I'll forget the first one. If you give me another <laughs> one, <laughs> but yeah, so you brought up a very good word that I don't think I used, but it's all embedded into the dual authorship of scripture. The dual authorship of scripture also highlights the inspiration of scripture, mm-hmm. right? That's the whole process that I was describing out of Second Peter chapter one. Breathed out. Yeah. Yeah. That's second that's second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen, mm-hmm. right? That's the inspiration of scripture. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what's what's being summarized here in, in Mark twelve, twelve thirty six, where he says David himself by the means of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. That is that is that is short term for inspiration, mm-hmm. right? David was inspired by the Holy Spirit, therefore mm-hmm. he wrote the Word of God, mm-hmm. right? And so that's the whole work of the inspiration, which literally the Greek term means breathed out by God, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's God breathes His Word out; it's His Word, and then the process is there in Second Peter. Well, so you brought up the whole idea of canonicity, mm-hmm. right? And that's a that's a really good conversation. I'm glad you brought that up. But again, the dual authorship of Scripture helps us in this so much. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or I, you could even say the inspiration of Scripture, mm-hmm. right, is is synonymous in some ways with the dual authorship. And so, so canonicity is fascinating when understood rightly, because at the end of the day, man, you talked about man recog- or man deciding what books were in and what books were out. That's actually not 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 the accurate way to describe it, though that's how everybody describes it. All Not my words. No, no, I know, but that's the way the words are yeah. used. Right. And, and really the right way to understand canonicity biblically is man never decide mm-hmm. what, what books are biblical. Mm-hmm. God decided what books were biblical when he inspired them, mm-hmm. right? That's God decided what books would be written and what books wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Right. And the books that were written were the ones he inspired. Right. Those are the biblical books. So man never gets to determine that. Man is never the determiner of scripture. Okay. Mm-hmm. Man is always the he always recognizes what God has already determined. Mm-hmm. So the idea of canonicity is not that man gets to determine and say these books are in, these books are out. No, what man does in canonicity is he recognizes what books God had already put in mm-hmm. and what God left out. Right. And so it's a, it's a point of recognition. And what's the recognition? I'm glad you asked. Mm-hmm. The recognition is, is this book marked by dual authorship? Mm-hmm. Meaning, is it inspired? Right. Does it have... Of course, all the books have a human author, right? Mm-hmm. The, pseudo, the pseudepigraphal books, the apocryphal books, all of those books have human authors. No one denies that. But is this human author also overshadowed by a divine author? Mm-hmm. Does this book carry with it a nature of, of divinity? Does it carry with it a divine nature? When you read this book, does it speak as if it's God himself speaking? Mm-hmm. That is one of the tests of canonicity. If a book speaks and it contradicts itself, it's got immoral teachings over here and then some sort of exalted teachings over here, mm-hmm. or it's really a bizarre and makes no sense. Like, there's, that doesn't sound like God. God's not a God of confusion. Matter of fact, the Bible declares that. He's a God of, 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 of clarity, right? Not a God of confusion. Mm-hmm. He's not a God of sin and debauchery, mm-hmm. right? He's not a God who contradicts himself. So whenever you see that, that immediately then throws that book out 
because it doesn't have divine authorship. It's got human authorship. Man does that all the time, but God never does that. And so mm-hmm. that's where that issue of canonicity and the implications on canonicity come up with dual authorship. Right. The reason, the way that I have settled this in my mind, and I'm going to give you like the question and then the answer, yeah. okay? If God is sovereign, would he have allowed books that he did not want in the Bible? So the answer is, since God is sovereign, it happened the way he planned it, and that is what the Bible is. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the way he did that was he worked through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. to have human authors write and to have the Holy Spirit be the ultimate author writing in and through these men. And then eventually it's called the preservation of Scripture, where he Mm -hmm. preserves Scripture all the way through. And then ultimately that preservation ends up in a canon, right? Which you have that in the Old Testament, and then you have that in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And those canons were always recognized by men to have divine authorship. And And again, there's a series of tests that they would look at, and they would look at it. For the New Testament, does it have apostolic authority to it? Does it have apostolic connection? Is it connected to an apostle mm-hmm. in some form or fashion? Does it demonstrate uh, divine authorship? Does it contradict? There's a series of questions they would ask. Mm-hmm. Well, all those so-called books all failed those tests, and so they all get they all got thrown out. Well, yeah, that's how that's how God's sovereignty is seen in the process of canonicity and the preservation of Scripture. Yeah, yeah, where He providentially provided thing about God's sovereignty is, and now we're in the weeds, but this is where you'd like to go. Mm-hmm. But the thing about God's sovereignty is, is um, he most, he mostly works through secondary means, mm-hmm. right? So he could have, he could have what we would call supernaturally, right? Intervened and the books just showed up, mm-hmm. right? And there's this bound copy and it's the Bible, right? Somebody found it and then it was copied and copied and copied. I mean, that's not the way he did it. He could have done it that way if he wanted to. Mm-hmm. But what we see throughout God's sovereign providence is he works most most often and most clearly through men. That's mm-hmm. what he does. And mm-hmm. so the process of canonicity fits the character of God because he's constantly working through men, and in that working he's sovereign over, and he's guiding his perfect eternal decree forward, and it cannot be thwarted, it won't be changed, and it won't be defiled. And so he works in the process. He could have done it where, where the word just showed up from heaven. Mm-hmm. But he, why does he use human authors? He didn't need to do that. Mm-hmm. But God chooses to work through men and sovereignly oversee his plan through those secondary means. He works through kings. He works through commoners. He works through animals. That's, I mean, that's how his providence works. It's very fascinating. And so, uh, yeah, so when you start to understand the providential workings of our sovereign God, then canonicity fits right into the mm-hmm. into the nature of how he works. It's just like everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I love that. Uh, the other question has more to do with the um, the the actual the actual scripture. So yep. um, you were saying that or just scripture itself, scripture itself, because okay. you were saying that there are different. Uh, types of scripture, you know, like different uh, uh, genre. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, you know, the the poetry, and then there's, you know, uh, uh, there's there's history. You know, there's Prophecy, yeah, yeah, there's there's law. yeah. So with that being the case, um, <laughs> because what I 
what I struggled, not struggled with, but what I've seen people struggle with, because I don't, I think this is a false argument. Yeah. Um, when people bring up uh, Paul yes. and how he, since it's dual authorship, yeah, he wrote with a, uh, uh, I wouldn't say, what is the word I'm looking for? A, a, uh, not a racial, but more of a, a sexist type of, uh, um, you know, authority, you yeah. know, it, it was, it was, he, he had this, this thing where he just was this, this, uh, this, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? You know what it is. Uh, uh, bravado, bravado, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Patriarchy. Patriarchal, yes. uh, viewpoint yeah. in scripture, yeah. uh, as to where he was offensive and demeaning to women. Yeah. And he was, you know, since he wrote that way, they look at it and use a, uh, uh, I forget the term that this uh, guy used, but uh, a hermeneutic of, um, he was basically looking at the the, the epistles that uh, Paul wrote yeah. uh, in a way that was like, no, I, I'm not going to, you know, even, uh, I like everything that he writes except for when he writes about, you know, men not, you know, women not preaching in the church or uh, a hermeneutic of suspicion. That's what, that's what it was. Yeah. A a hermeneutic of suspicion. So he's looking at scripture, Paul's writing specifically with a hermeneutic of suspicion. So because of that, there are things, certain things that Paul says that he just pretty much just crosses off of the list because of him writing inside of the culture that he was in. Yeah. That made it wrong. Now, since we are in this new culture, yeah, where you know feminism is 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 so strong, yeah, we shouldn't listen to what he said back then. Yeah, and actually, there's there's a, a better term for it. Hermeneutic of suspicion is just a that's actually not a helpful term, but there's a better term for it. It's actually called identity hermeneutics. Okay, and, and it's being taught in seminaries. Okay, actually, and it's a false hermeneutic. It's mm-hmm. an ungodly hermeneutic. It's not a not a sound hermeneutic i can tell you that Mm -hmm. because what it does is again so our hermeneutic should come from god it should come from above not below Mm -hmm. it should it should it should be set over us Mm -hmm. right not come from within us and so the hermeneutic of identity says i i am going to read scripture through the lens of my culture and identity Mm -hmm. what i what i have just done now is no longer allow Scripture to speak for itself. Mm-hmm. I'm allowing Scripture. I'm allowing myself to determine what Scripture says. Mm-hmm. It's very much a reverse re- reader response theory, uh, liberal thought all over again in a in a backward way. Mm-hmm. It's saying that I, that's that I can't understand Scripture and I can't rightly divide Scripture unless I read Scripture through my culture and my identity, whether mm-hmm. that's Asian, whether that's Indian, whether that's African American, whether that's European or whatever. That's totally missing the whole point of Scripture. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to understand, understand Scripture in that culture, mm-hmm. not my culture, mm-hmm. right? I'm supposed to put my culture aside mm-hmm. so that I can rightfully understand what God was saying to these people, whoever those people are in Scripture, saying to those people at that time, in that culture, in that day, for that purpose. That's how I understand what God is doing. It's an arrogant, prideful hermeneutic that says, no, it's all about me and my culture and my day. No, 
It's not. It's about God and what he was saying Mm -hmm. and what he wanted. And obviously what he says and what he wants involves a timeless truth that applies to this day, including Mm -hmm. me and everyone else. But before I can ever understand that universal, timeless theological truth, I have to understand it in its original context, Mm -hmm. which was written by an original author who was given to an original audience and it had an original purpose, mm. and that, and none of that was me. Mm-hmm. So the goal in Scripture is to find out what Scripture meant before I was born. Mm. Wow, yeah. To take myself out of it. That is an arrogant, prideful, um, shall I say, uh, foolish hermeneutic that thinks that I'm somehow going to see what God is saying through the lens of myself. Mm-hmm. No, but that's the, the hermeneutic of critical race theory and identity politics and identity hermeneutics, and obviously it's, it's just nothing more than the hermeneutic of our time, but that is in no way, in no way, um, what God wants or, or where God will be heard and seen that mm-hmm. takes him out of the picture and put, makes man God, mm-hmm. what it does, and it's, uh, it's sad, it's very sad, but it's becoming very common, yeah. very common, it's, it's, it's the byproduct of critical race theory is all it is, mm-hmm. it's just an outworking of that, but um, but that obviously is is not at all what we're interested in or or where we're headed because we want God to speak mm-hmm. and uh, we want him to speak and he has spoken yeah. and it's there. We just now need to get in there and hear it mm-hmm. and to hear it, we've got to understand it in its original context with the original author and original writer it has nothing to do with me. My identity matters nothing, mm-hmm. right? My color, my culture has no bearing on the text mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. I bring nothing to the text. Mm-hmm. I come to pull everything out of the text, mm-hmm. right? right? And so that's, you see how it's reversed, mm-hmm. right? The reader response says, it's all about me. Mm-hmm. And the word becomes the word of God when it relates to me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, no, it's the word of God, whether I'm here or not, Yeah, right? Yep. And so my job is to figure it out. Mm-hmm. My job isn't to change it. Mm-hmm. And then you see how that all changes. And again, you know, yeah, it's we could, talk a lot about this yeah well another question that came out of specifically mark chapter 12 um and i might be reading and you know in between the lines on this but one thing that i did notice about this is when in verse 35 well verse 36 david himself and the holy spirit declared mm. and there's no response uh from the scribes nope. but i would imagine that and through, and you can probably tell me this through the culture and yeah. that time yeah. that nobody disagreed with Jesus when he said through the Holy Spirit. Not at all. Okay. And because obviously they believed the 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 Old Testament, mm-hmm. right? They believed the Psalms. They mm-hmm. believed the Torah was all, excuse me, inspired. Okay. Right. They believed that. Right. Mm-hmm. The Bible says that. Mm-hmm. Thus saith the Lord. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's there's no argument against what Jesus says. Right. Not even a not even a hiccup. Okay. Nobody's like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, they they, they totally agree. That's the, again, the divine wisdom of Christ displayed mm-hmm. here. He's turning the whole thing on them. He mm-hmm. knows. Guys, you, you, you yourselves admit to the inspiration of Scripture. Mm-hmm. So David wrote, and, and the whole point of in the Holy Spirit, meaning he wrote without error. Mm-hmm. It's divine. God makes no mistakes. God does not lie. Whatever he says is true. Mm-hmm. So whatever David writes in the Holy Spirit, is accurate. So if David says that the Messiah, the Christ, is also Adonai, mm-hmm. is Lord, 
what are you saying that the Messiah is just a son? Mm-hmm. Like you can see. And that's why they had no response. Because what were they going to say? David did not write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Now they cut out you mm-hmm. know, all of their authority, which Jesus did that anyway. So yeah, yeah your point is... Yeah, is well taken, and I and I didn't want to like try to. I, I know I do that a lot. I'm trying not to do that, which I kind of read into the scripture way too much. Yeah, but I just noticed that when I read it, I was like, you know what? There was no no argument, no argument from the yep. scribes about yep. that. That's so, a good point. Yeah, and you know what we did also is we kind of parachuted in uh, with you know, some people that may not be following uh, Matt's sermons. I just want to kind of give. Uh, a 30-second synopsis of this, and, and you can add to this what you want, Matt. Uh, Mark chapter 12, we've been obviously as a church studying the book of Mark uh, for the past 12 decades, and... Uh, <laughs> and uh, Feels like it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, probably last three years, right? It's three uh, years? Uh, yeah. 2018, Under, or did you start 2019? Uh, 2019, I yeah, think. So I can't remember. Two and a half years almost. It's been so long, I can't... It's yeah. 106 sermons, that I do know. Yeah, that, that's a lot which of is, sermons. Which isn't a lot of sermons over years but it we've had a lot of breaks right a lot of breaks a lot of christmas you know uh covid yeah yeah yeah, black lives matter we've had we've touched (laughs) and all those are sermons prayer government yep you think about all the sermon series that i've felt like i need to pause and preach this right right that's what's taken so long so it I've only preached 106 sermons, and it's not that's not too bad for. And and 106 sermons is actually less than what you wanted to preach because you wanted to preach more on certain subjects. Yes, yes. So so parachuting in kind of give you a synopsis. Uh, This is terrible Tuesday. So this is the Tuesday before Christ goes to the cross, and this is the last. What that portion is the last of the questions or or the. Uh, a response, I would say, because he'd been asking questions. The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they had all been asking questions uh, of Christ, trying to trap him uh, theologically uh, through the law uh, of, the, of the common law of the day uh, with the question about Caesar and the taxes. And this was kind of like Jesus' response, but he asked them a question and he stumps them uh, because uh, at the end, uh, verse 37, and the great throng heard him gladly, meaning, uh, and I'm trying to remember what I wrote without looking at it, uh, that the crowd was happy to hear that the, the scribes were stumped yes. by the question. Yes. Uh, so that's kind of where we are in there. And, you know, obviously you can probably add a little bit more just for context for people that aren't following uh, the, the sermons. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh Tuesday begins at Mark 11, verse 20. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's the longest day recorded in the Passion Week, and he is being assaulted. The They are out to kill him. The text makes that very clear. And so they ask him this series. We, I mean, it's likely they would have asked him more, but we have four recorded very clearly for us. They asked him a personal question. They asked him a political question. They asked him a theological question. They mm-hmm. asked him a spiritual, or a, better yet, a scriptural question. Those mm-hmm. kind of they and each one was was meant to twist and turn and entrap him in his answer. So very well thought out. It was planned out. The text says that very clearly. And they they kept sending in different different parts of the Sanhedrin or leaders of the Jews to try to trap them. And they saved obviously the best for last, the scribes, the quote unquote experts. Seal team six. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They tried, they tried and it didn't work. Jesus, Jesus stumped them all and turned it all on them again. Again, the beauty is showing his deity, mm-hmm. showing that he's God. Look, you, you can't stump 
God, yeah. right? And just, again, his deity and his wisdom and power just displayed throughout this in marvelous ways. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's, that's the context. And, and again, he's teaching in the temple. He's in the temple. He's in their authority seat. He's, he's taking it to them. Mm-hmm. And again, he's two days away from being crucified, essentially, yeah. or three days. And so, yeah, we're, we're, this is the end. The tension is filled. He knows he's pulling cords. He knows he's sovereign. He's moving along a divine timetable, and he's ratcheting up the tension. And, uh, and they're demonstrating over and over again that they hate him and they've rejected him. And uh, and how sad that is. Mm-hmm. Even though he continues to reach out to them, yeah, obviously not you know not like he was, but even in these questions, there are opportunities for them to repent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like this one. It's like, guys, don't you see it? Wake up, mm-hmm. turn. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And obviously they didn't. Now we don't know the story for every scribe and Pharisee because mm-hmm. we know some of some of them did become believers, but. The majority obviously don't, and so you see even the tenderness and the compassion of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, one of the questions that I wrote down, um, <laughs> I have two questions. I'm gonna save the the other question for last because that's for me that was kind of a funny question that I wrote down. But it's a uh, it's gonna be you're gonna like answering it. Trust me. This one though um, is a I guess a longer question, yeah. um, and the question is. Uh, where in Scripture or the Old Testament does it say he will be uh, the God Man, one hundred percent God, and then one hundred percent man? Yeah. So Psalm one ten. This was this probably would have been a whole sermon for you. Absolutely. If you, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Psalm one ten is the most quoted uh, Psalm ten verse one, most quoted Old Testament mm-hmm. passage in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Right. And myriad of times comes up in almost every book mm-hmm. and quoted many times uh, 30 plus times depending on direct quotes implied quotes allusions depending on how you define that but it is uh, one of if not the most old old testament passage used in the new testament which is significant because to answer your question right here right right here david says right about his lord that he will be at so here clearly he's speaking of the deity of the Messiah, mm-hmm. right? He's clearly speaking of his divinity, that this guy is greater than David himself, mm-hmm. right? And, and and I think in the sermon I pointed out a number of ways within the psalm itself where you see the divinity, the deity of the Messiah, right? Mm-hmm. He's sitting at the right hand of God. Whoever does that, Hebrews 1 says nobody does that, not even angels, mm-hmm. right? We're given that privilege. That's only given to the Son of God. This mm-hmm. is the very Son of God, sitting in the very blazing, holy presence of God. No man can can be in the presence of God and live, mm-hmm. right? Even the angels themselves go in covering their eyes, right? right? right. This guy sits next to him on a throne, mm-hmm. which speaks of equality and mm-hmm. prominence, mm-hmm. right? Where they're, there they are serving together, God the Father, God the Son, inequality even though they they have those distinctive titles right and so that speaks of his deity so there's a there's the passage that jesus goes to mm-hmm. to answer your question to show that the messiah will be uh will be god right will be equal with god i.e will be the son of god which is what mark said in mark chapter 1 verse 1 that his whole purpose in writing was to elevate jesus christ as the son of god and that's literally what Psalm 110 does and David does mm-hmm. as he looks forward to the future Messiah who would be the answer to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 2, which goes to the second part of your question where 
where is the Messiah going to be a man? Well, he's going to come out of David's loins. He's going to come out of his lines. Mm-hmm. He's going to be a very son of David, meaning he's going to be born out of the house and lineage of David. So therefore, he's got to be human, right, to be born. And that was the promise made in Second Samuel uh, uh, chapter 7, uh, where the Davidic covenant is established uh, by God himself with David when he promises, I'm going to bring forth a king that's going to come from your line, and he will sit on your throne forever and ever and ever. And that that Davidic promise is massive. And then uh, obviously you have so many passages in the scripture. You take just uh, take Isaiah, Isaiah 9, right, with the, the reality of the son will be, uh, a son will be given and a son will be born. I think in that passage right there, in that glorious uh, Messiah passage of Christmas. Yeah, I never thought of that. Yeah. Isaiah nine. Yeah, I remember preaching that many years ago, and and uh, at, during Christmas, and showing that there, there you have you have an, an allusion to the divinity and the humanity of Christ. Isaiah nine is all about obviously the Messiah coming ultimately, right? The child will be born to us, and so you see the reality of the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah nine two. That all speaks of of uh, the Gentiles and the land of Zebulun. There it is, the land of Naphtali. That's all, that's all Galilee. You see it right there in verse, uh, verse uh, 1, right? The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, right? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Where does Jesus begin his earthly ministry? Galilee. Right there. And, and, and there are the people walking in darkness, and they've seen the great light. Who's the great light? The light of the world, Christ mm-hmm. has come, and obviously that's why that's a big deal. So you keep going down through this this glorious messianic passage, and you see that verse six: "For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given." So their born speaks of humanity. Being given speaks of the fact that he's a son already, and someone gives him to us. Hmm. That speaks of his deity. Mm. Right there, right there in the text. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called. There you go. Wonderful counselor. Oh, look at the next one. He is called Mighty, Mighty God. God. Yep. Everlasting Father. How can he be an everlasting father? If right? he was born. Exactly. Prince of Peace mm. and the increase of his government, and on, on it goes. Yeah. So as you start to wrestle with this, you see throughout the scriptures the Messiah that was coming was going to be both a, 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 a human and divine, and it comes up multiple times in the scriptures, and as we've already seen in the Psalms, and so this reality comes up. Obviously, he's going to be crucified, which means he has to be human. Mm-hmm. Psalm 22 is one of the most crucifixion passages, right. Isaiah 53, mm-hmm. right? And so so you have all of these passages when you take them together and start to read them, and you see, well, clearly he's divine in who he is and what he does, but yet at the same time, he's human. He dies. He's sacrificed. Mm-hmm. He's born. He's given. You're just like, whoa, yeah, he's unlike any other. And he's an everlasting. So back to Psalm 110, he, he, um, in that passage, the Messiah is described as not only the king who is sovereign and rules over all. No one's ever done that, ever will do that, but the Messiah will. But then he's also described as the priest in the order of Melchizedek. What is that? That speaks of an eternal order. That speaks of something that has never, ever happened and was forbidden to happen mm. in the, in the uh, line of Levi, right? In the, in the line of the kings, you could never have a king and a priest at, mm-hmm. the, at, the, at the same time in one person. 
Hmm. Never could have that, right? Because, wait a minute, so... It was forbidden that a king would be a priest. And that's why Levi... That's why you had the line of Levi. Nobody in Levi was... They were never kings. Right, right? but Judah... Yeah. Yeah, Judah is not the line of Levi. Right, but Judah had line of kings, though. Yes, yes. But to have a guy in the line of Judah who's also going to be acting as if he's in the line of Levi, what is that? Yeah. And that's what that's what Uzziah tries to do. And Uzziah right, right, right. tried to be priest and offer the sacrifices, and God says, no, no, that's not good, and strikes him with leprosy for the rest of his life until he dies. Right? So having a and king— then Isaiah saw the Lord. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so to have a king who also tries to be a priest, mm. yeah, that, that didn't happen until— the Messiah comes. So, okay, so maybe you could refresh me on the this, this story, because uh, I, I remember Uzziah, but was he actually, how did, how, how did he put himself into the, in, into the priesthood? He was, he was told not to do it by the priest. He went and offered incense to the Lord and was doing priestly duties as if he was a priest. Oh, okay. And the priests were like, no, don't do that. You're not allowed to do that. And he went in, disregarded the priest's counsel and, 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 uh, uh, in arrogance, and went in and offers, uh, offered up the uh, incense to the Lord, and immediately gets leprosy and had it till he died. It was, it's a sad end to mm. end to the um, to the to the legacy of Isaiah. It's really sad. But um, but back in um, back and, in Psalm, and I remember it being quoted in Hebrews: "You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek." Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because right. that's again, that's what that's. Look at what Psalm one ten says. That's what Psalm one ten promised. Mm-hmm. That he would be, this Messiah would be again, not only an eternal king but an eternal priest, <coughs> and it says, there in oh, yeah. Um, okay. yeah, I see it. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Verse four. Right? Yeah, and so again in Second Chronicles twenty six sixteen to twenty one is that is where you can read about Uzziah offering up sacrifice mm-hmm. as if he was or incense as if he was a priest, and and that was never allowed. But here now you have a clear king who's also a priest. What in the world is this, mm. right? He's 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 way different. He's not just human, a human king. Mm-hmm. He is the hu- he is the human God man king, who's also the God man priest, mm. right? Who's also the God man prophet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, yeah, he's like no other. So as you study this out through Scripture, you're you're uh, blown away by this. All of this is even seen even also in in Daniel. You see the Ancient of Days, whose time was before time began, mm-hmm. who comes in, and 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 uh, I, you can turn over there. This is a glorious passage too. I, um, I quoted it in the Daniel. I think it's in Daniel chapter seven, um, where Daniel has the vision of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. Here it is. You can see this. It it goes throughout the letter or out throughout the prophecy. But in 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 verse thirteen of chapter seven, it says, "I saw in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's Christ, and he came to the ancient of days. That's God, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion. That is to Christ was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him." His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And here it is, and that's why when, um, 
when Jesus stands before the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, quoting Daniel 7 and Psalm 110, and he looks at the scribes and the Pharisees, and they say, are you the Christ? And he says, I am. First of all, he's quoting the great I am. I am Yahweh. I am, the, I am that I am. And he says, I am. And then he says, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds uh, of glory and sitting at the right hand of power. He's quoting both Daniel 7 and Psalm 110, saying, mm. I am the man prophesied in, in Psalm 110 and the man prophesied in Daniel 7. I am he. And that's when they rip their clothes and mm-hmm. say, blasphemy, because they knew he was claiming to be God, they God's be- son. They believe him now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they'll bow before him yeah. in the future. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. As king. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, a friend of mine was was thankful that uh, now that R.C. Sproul has died, he is now Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll leave that alone. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but that's good. I, I appreciate uh, you kind of walking us through that. Psalm, you got some more. Psalm one ten is just it's it's glorious, and mm-hmm. I wanted to preach the whole psalm, and I did a lot of it that day. But I just think it's interesting that Jesus only quoted verse one. He could have quoted any verse or all of it, and all of it's good. But I think it's interesting, and in a, in a, in a note worth considering as we no doubt wrap this up, that it says, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I think it's interesting just to stop and consider the chronology of that verse and where we are. Because that is exactly where Christ is in his ascension ministry. He is sitting at the right hand of God waiting for God to make all of his enemies, his hassock, his footstool. Mm. That's where we are. Mm-hmm. We are in that point eschatologically, if you will, mm-hmm. where he is now ascended at the right hand of God, which God, there it is, there's the prophecy right there, and there's many more that say this, where he's now in heaven sitting at the right hand of God because he has finished his earthly ministry, He's now in his ascension ministry, which Hebrews 7, Hebrews 10 shows shows us this, where he's interceding on behalf of his own so that they might be saved to the uttermost. He's serving in that priestly ministry mm-hmm. right now, serving us, praying for us at the right hand of God when Satan comes in, no doubt, and accuses the brethren. And so there he is in his milk, in, in, in a sense, not in the fullest sense, but in a sense, serving as Mel, as in the order of Melchizedek in this priesthood and waiting, waiting, waiting until he's dispatched by the Father and says, now's the time to put all of your enemies under your feet. Mm. And that's when he will return once again to earth and the obviously the tribulation and Armageddon and then the millennial kingdom and all of that is coming, which will then, which will then move us to verse 2. So this is this passage is so Whoa. in in <laughs> verse two, look what it says. The Lord dispatches. Look, the Lord, Yahweh, that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's God the Father. The Lord, Yahweh, sends forth f- from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. What happened in verse two that is different from verse one? Verse one, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now he's ruling where? from Zion. Mm. He's in Jerusalem. There it is. In Jerusalem. That's what Zion means. He is there. Look, rule in the midst of your enemies. Mm -hmm. He's no longer now in heaven ruling. He's now on earth 
ruling. This is the millennial reign, the literal 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ where he's sitting on a literal throne, the Davidic throne, which was promised in 2 Samuel 7, a literal throne, not a spiritual one in heaven. Mm -hmm. Jesus is not on the Davidic throne in heaven right now. He, he will sit on the Davidic throne, which has to be in Jerusalem, in Zion, and he will rule mm-hmm. as he was prophesied to. And that's what we're waiting for. So if you can see it, there is like a ton of question marks that just I have a halo of question marks now because of that. Because of you explaining that now because of... I, I just showed what the text said. So. Yeah. And and I am very very I'm 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 chomping at the bit. You and everybody else. You, 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 y'all can hear my hands <laughs> rubbing together because <laughs> you I know just, where I'm going. I just gave you a little bit more of that. <laughs> that was a horse derby. That's, That's what right. that was. <laughs> a horse derby or derv. My dad used to say horse derby. So, uh, yeah, because Mark 13 is going to be uh, glorious, and I and I and I kind of feel like that is that is kind of like the 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 horse derby towards Mark 13. Like that is the, it's coming the edgy. That's the preview, you know, uh, that, Oh yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about, however, however, Uh that being said, and this is for another podcast, but there are false teachers that need to be dealt with first in Mark. And that's what comes up next in the text. Yes. Is the false teachers and the passage that we'll be preaching this Sunday is, uh, one of, one of the, how do I want to say this? One of the passages that's most often misunderstood. Misunderstood. Yep. Most people. Matter of fact, I, I would oh. say almost every commentary I have, I'll take a different view. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I should. It's a good way to end the podcast. We we aren't done yet. Well, I mean, that's a good way to end it because people will be like, "What? Don't you want to come back and find out what he's talking about?" <laughs> right. I still got this one more question. <laughs> So it, I don't know. This this is a uh, we'll give them, we 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 we've left them with nothing for so, the last uh, couple of here weeks. You go. So the widow's might is it really about giving? Wow! Because I can guarantee you, I know you have heard probably a thousand sermons that were guilt driven for you to give like the widow gave, who gave all that she had. Uh, Matt, I, I have several, <laughs> several songs in my head right now yep. that I can quote that were written because of the inspiration of that text. That that I have heard sermons that were preached that I have heard. Yeah. And a lot of them have to do with. I don't think that's what that text is saying. Oh, man. That's all I got to say about that right now. Yeah. So we'll have to check back in for more on that. Oh, I, I look forward to it. I yep. look forward to it. This is, it's but, a good way to bring that to a close. See, see, I'm helping you out here. I, but I have this one question. Right. Okay, right. maybe I should have asked this question first before I ask this question. Okay, but this is a good question, I think, to to, to ask as well. Now, that other question that he just asked, I <laughs> let me tell you, I am... I, <laughs> I want so bad to ask those questions right now. <laughs> you got to wait, brother. I got to wait. I, I'm going I'm to wait patiently. And also, I know that he is he is bubbling because he is literally in the text right now. He is swimming in the text. I am. So I'm going to leave it alone. I'm not going to ask that question. Nope. But the question, again, just, just to wet our whistle, 
Is this scripture, this passage, Mark 13, verses, uh, sorry, Mark 12, verse 41 yeah. through 44, your question was, is it about giving? Yes. That that right there, oh man, I am I'm I'm very intrigued now. All right, let's let's move on. Let's move on. Yep. The last question that I have for you actually has to do with something that you said right before uh I don't know if it was before or after, but it was uh towards the end of that same uh sermon on the seventh of uh, August yep. twenty twenty two. Yep. You gave a you gave two views of scripture. Yep. The Arminian view of scripture. Yeah. Versus the Calvinistic view of scripture. Yep. Do you remember saying that? Vaguely, but you'll re- you'll refresh me. Okay. You you were I, I you know I I don't I don't even know if I remember what you actually said during that time, but here's what I here's what I remember saying. Okay. I was talking about so I made a this is a major point in the text mm-hmm. that that this is huge and this bears repeating. The scribes' issue was not that they were totally wrong about the Messiah. They were partially wrong. They were incomplete in their understanding of the Messiah. So to say that the Messiah is human is partially right. That's not wrong. Hmm. He is human. He is born of a virgin, Mm -hmm. right? There's part of his deity. How does that happen? But he's born, right? He comes from God through through the Holy Spirit, but also through Mary. So you have the humanity of Christ. So to say that the Messiah would be human isn't totally wrong, mm-hmm. partially wrong. It's partially right. It's incomplete. Well, how did they have an incomplete understanding of the Messiah? I'm glad you asked. Because they only read part of Scripture. Mm. They didn't take the totality of the Word of God. They didn't allow the unity of Scripture to supersede their interpretations. Soon as they saw that he was human, then they ran with it and disregarded or disobeyed or even didn't even read all the other scriptures that speak so clearly of the divinity of the Messiah. They only allowed part of scripture to speak. Well, anytime you only allow part of scripture to speak, you're always going to have an incomplete understanding of whatever doctrine you're studying, which means you'll always end up having an accurate understanding of doctrine. So then I went on and explained how an Arminian view of Scripture will only focus on certain passages that spoke of or speak of man's responsibility to believe, and therefore they'll focus on the fact that, see, man, man must believe, therefore man has to believe, therefore the free will of man is a big deal. And so they'll focus on that one side and disregard all the other scriptures that speak of the sovereignty of God and salvation and the dead heart of man who can't believe. And, and so they have this incomplete view of scripture. There is some truth to what they say at times, depending on which Arminian you might talk to, that man must believe. Mm-hmm. Man is commanded to believe. It is part of the gospel. Yeah, we don't deny that. But that's not the only truth, right? You got to pull the unity of scripture together. You got to f- pull the whole counsel of God. You got to see it all to get your doctrine right. And then I brought up, so I brought that up as a point of where the incomplete view of scripture gives you an ac- inaccurate understanding of doctrine. And then I pointed to hyper-Calvinists, mm-hmm. where the hyper-Calvinists, right, will also, or the hard Calvinists will also do the same exact thing in the opposite direction, mm-hmm. where they'll say, see, God is so sovereign. It, it, God is so sovereign 
man's going to believe no matter what we do, so therefore we don't need to evangelize, we don't need to send out missionaries, we really don't need to talk about you know salvation. We just talk about the, the scriptures and sanctification because God's going to save whoever he's going to save. Mm. And it's like, well, they have done the same exact thing, but on the other side of the right. spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I brought out. And there's many examples, obviously, of that. But I think it's interesting that the whole issue, notwithstanding their depraved hearts, obviously, and their blind eyes, that's a no-brainer. But in the moment and in the text, Jesus is confronting them with their incomplete view of the Messiah, right? The Christ who was coming. They had an incomplete understanding of him. Therefore, therefore... They have an inaccurate view of Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, right? So they had, a, they had an incomplete view of who the Messiah would be. Then when the Messiah shows up on the scene mm. and says, I am the Son of God, mm. they're like, no, no, you can't be the Messiah because he would mm-hmm. never be the Son of God. Mm-hmm. See, So therefore, their incomplete view of Scripture led them to an inaccurate understanding of Jesus whom they killed. So it all comes back to this. Their ultimate issue, notwithstanding their depravity, was their their unbiblical hermeneutic and handling of the Scriptures. Because they handled the Scriptures wrongly, they ended up in the disaster that they did. Now, obviously, it's also their wicked hearts and prideful hearts and all of that, but the point is clear and, and helpful because we do the same all the time. We handle the Scriptures flippantly and whimsically and not carefully and fearfully as we should, and, and thoroughly, right? That was the point I think I brought out in the sermon, that you've got to establish your doctrines thoroughly across the whole scope of Scripture and allow the whole of Scripture, the whole counsel of God to come to bear on your understanding of doctrine so that you're getting, you're getting it all, so that you have a right view, not just cherry-picking verses here and there. And yeah. that, that was what they did, and that's the results. And we, we fall prey to that all the time, and, and we must not. Yeah. When you put it that way, I, I definitely understand how dangerous that can be. I mean, oh. that, that is that's where, that is very dangerous. Yeah, that's where humility and a teachable spirit come in, because who understands the whole counsel of God? Mm. Like, who's going to rise up and say, I got it all. I got it all figured out. Uh, no one. Right. And so we're constantly studying and we're constantly researching and we're constantly sitting at the feet of the ultimate teacher, Christ, through his spirit so that we might learn and grow. And what? Our doctrine is constantly shaping and forming, not necessarily changing and drastically on every point, but deepening in clarity and conviction and a better understanding of this and that as we get a better understanding of the whole counsel of God. And mm-hmm. that's where coming to the text humbly is so important. Mm-hmm. They didn't come to the text humbly. They came to the text pridefully, mm-hmm. which is, again, that's our natural default. And that's that was an exhortation, obviously, an application from the sermon, and mm-hmm. you drew me into that. Now we're done. Well, yeah, I mean, it's in there. It's in the scriptures, oh, right there. It's, it's in the it's in the it's text. It's in the so. text. Yeah. yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, and I and I think that the application. Uh, I'm going to read what I wrote. At least um, we have the same heart as the scribes to see Christ wrongly, mm. and uh, we must fight our uh, diminished view of Christ when Christ is diminished. It's when we are the biggest, and so are our problems. Uh, yeah, prices diminish. That's what I, I I brought that up a lot because that was uh, for me that was a summation of the whole point mm-hmm. was they had a diminished view of the Messiah mm-hmm. as uh, because of their mishandling of the scriptures. They had a diminished view of the Messiah, and therefore they had an inflated inflated view of self. Mm-hmm. And whenever you diminish Christ, 
the void that is left will always be filled with yourself. Mm. And and obviously, all of us struggled with with an exalted view of Christ. Mm-hmm. Right? We 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 rarely see him as he is. That's why we struggle the way we struggle. But but we are called to see him as the high and holy one lifted up. Mm-hmm. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Holy One. And that's what we constantly have to be faced with and, and confronted with is a right view of Christ. Mm-hmm. Because when we see Christ rightly, we'll see ourselves humbly. When we see Christ wrongly, we'll see ourselves pridefully. Mm-hmm. That was the scribes. Yeah. That's us. Mm-hmm. And that's why the answer to our pride is Christ. Mm-hmm to be humbled by him. Yeah, and to reiterate what you just said, their view of Christ uh, that was wrong was because of their view of, their wrong view of Scripture. Yes. And uh, yeah, that's view- where they got mm-hmm. the diminished view of Christ was through their their wrong handling of the Scripture. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I love this one. Um, be careful, and this was uh, referring to verse 37 of Mark 12. Be careful that you don't, ju- don't just hear him gladly. Uh, hear the word fearfully. Oh yeah, well, well, that was the crowds, right? Because mm-hmm. I just brought that out at the end that they hear him gladly, and because obviously they're they're like, yeah, the scribes, I see it, they get it wrong. This teacher put them in their place. Yeah, we like what he's saying. Mm-hmm. We, we like, like they liked what he said. However, you just have to remember that in two days' time, the same crowd that heard mm-hmm. Christ gladly right. will cry out to him. Crucify him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, the same Greek word that's used there for gladly is exactly what's used for Herod, that it would said he would go and listen to John the Baptist gladly, mm-hmm. right? But then he ends up killing John mm-hmm. the Baptist, right? Mm-hmm. So hearing the word gladly in a sermon doesn't mean in any way that you are applying the word faithfully. Mm. Yeah. Your heart could be just as hard and as wicked to hear it gladly. And obviously we see that in Ezekiel. Ezekiel talks about Israel listening to the, the, the word of the prophet Ezekiel and hearing him gladly and yet never doing what it says. Mm-hmm. And that, that, uh, that passage has always um, scared me and always sobered me because I see that uh, propensity, obviously, in my own heart, but I see it all the time mm-hmm. in ministry yeah. where people will, will sit, they'll listen to the word, they'll even make good comments about it, but they'll fail to do what it says. Mm. And so these people heard it. So think about it. If they really heard what he was saying, they would have bowed right there mm. at his feet and been like, whoa, you are the Messiah. Mm-hmm. But they heard him gladly because their focus was on the scribes mm-hmm. and themselves, yeah. not on the one who was teaching. Mm-hmm. That was the point. Yeah. That's good. I uh, appreciate that. Um, we have so many things to walk through, but we're going to end here. And uh, come back next time when uh, I have a big surprise for you all. Uh, I've been getting some feedback uh, and I'm going to let you I'm going to leave you all on this cliffhanger until next uh, the next podcast. So I have a surprise for you all. And but I really appreciate uh, you all listening. And uh, I will uh, make sure that when we come back, I will give you the surprise. But as of right now. Here it is. I was looking for the button to press. Thank you all for tuning in to the Truth Talks podcast. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The biblical gospel starts with God. Out of nothing, God made everything, including you and me, to bring himself much pleasure. His purpose for us as humanity was to love, obey, and enjoy him perfectly. Instead of this, 
man has sinned against our loving creator and acted in rebellion. Since God is good and just, he must punish sin that deserves eternal conscious punishment under God's wrath in hell. But God, being merciful, loving, and gracious, had a plan to punish sin, and so be a just judge, and yet forgive sinners, and so display mercy, by sending his own Son, Jesus Christ, the co-equal and co-eternal Son of God, to take on human flesh, fulfilling his perfect requirements in the place of sinners, loving, obeying, and enjoying him perfectly. Furthermore, Jesus bore the full wrath of God upon the cross, and he satisfied the eternal anger of God, standing in a place of sinners, though he was himself perfectly sinless. God showed his acceptance of Christ's sacrifice by raising Jesus from the dead after three days in the grave. Now Jesus commands everyone everywhere to repent, turn from their sin, and believe, trust in him. This is the glorious transaction. God then charges Christ's perfection to the sinner and no longer views him as an enemy, but instead an adopted son and daughters covered in the perfect righteousness of his son. We can now have peace with God and have eternal life with him forever. It's true for every person in every culture, in every place, in every language through all time. So our response to this good news is repentance and faith. Dear hearer, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Turn from your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this day, be Thanks reconciled to God. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a comment. If you have a question, please send them to the Truth Talks Podcast at gmail.com. Visit our Instagram and Twitter at the Truth Talks Podcast. And visit our website at bellcroftbiblechurch.org. Delighting in the word that we might walk in the truth. A ministry of Bellcroft Bible Church.